Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Father, thank you for your word, for the important instruction we read this morning. We ask that you bless now the reading and meditating and the study of your word. Lord, we know that there's things that you want to communicate to our hearts and lives today. There's a battle raging. And Lord, you've promised us victory. This morning, Lord, I pray that you would unlock in our hearts and minds the keys for that victory. We love you so much and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I the only person here today with this problem? Or do any of you find it easier to put on a few pounds than you do to take off a few pounds? Am I the only person with this problem? Have you ever suspected that just imagining a plate of food somehow can add inches to your waistline? Not even, just imagining it. I mean, it seems to me all I have to do to gain weight is just to think of a calorie-stuffed dessert, a creamy hot fudge sundae, or a mouth-watering chocolate-layered cheesecake. I mean, all I did was think the thought. I just imagined the edible. I put it in my mind, not even in my mouth. And yet, presto, I feel heavier already. It yielded instant inches, or so it sometimes seems. Actually, our suspicions may not be far from the truth. New research indicates that for some people, just thinking about food actually increases their insulin levels, which in turn makes them hungrier. Thoughts about food may not directly add inches to your midsection, but it can increase your appetite and prompt you to eat more. Thoughts are powerful forces, which causes me to think. If thoughts can produce hunger pangs, can they stimulate other appetites? And I'm certain they can. In fact, your thought life will fuel many of your drives and your passions and your desires. The thoughts you entertain mentally will affect you spiritually. They will either lead you to Christ or they will lead you into sin. In my opinion, it's not an overstatement to say the key to living a victorious Christian life is found right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. This is such a vital passage. In this morning's text, Paul takes us to a battlefield, but a battlefield of a very unusual variety. Here you'll find no barbed wire, nor tanks, no camouflage tents. Here the soldiers aren't worried about biological weapons or laser-guided missiles. Here people get wounded, but the wounds are not the kind that bleed. On this battlefield, AK-47s and hand grenades are worthless. The weapons of choice in this battle are spiritual and mental, 
not physical and martial. Paul ushers us onto the battlefield of the mind. Whether you overcome sin in your life and live to the glory of God and enjoy the blessings of God's salvation and become productive for His kingdom will all be determined by what goes on in the gray matter that's housed between your two ears. Bible teacher David Needham puts it this way, virtually every battle we will ever fight with sin will be won or lost on the turf of our imagination. There is a battle raging on the bluffs and buttes of our mind. Your thought life is not a playground, it's a battleground. And the stakes are eternally high. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 tells us, Gird up the loins of your mind. That phrase, gird up, it means get a grip. You could say, tighten the chin strap of your mind. Or pull up your mental bootstraps. Or roll up your spiritual shirt sleeves. In essence, Paul is saying to us, it's time to get a grip on our thought life. For Peter, this is the issue that demands extraordinary effort and persistence and determination. This is where we should spend our energy until the job gets done. A serious follower of Jesus disciplines his mind to think pure and holy and godly thoughts. Imagine the Old Testament temple, clean, shiny, on the exterior, but filthy and unkept in the inner court. That's hard to even picture in our minds. For what good Levite or priest would ever allow garbage to pile up in the sacred temple? The caretakers of Judaism were never, would never allow the Holy of Holies, that area nearest the presence of God, to become a trash heap or a pig pen or a garbage can. Surely not. Such an idea was totally unthinkable. And it should be just as unthinkable for us. For the New Testament tells us that the Christian is the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Thus, we need to keep our inner court, that inner person of our mind and soul as pure as possible. We need to reserve our head and our heart exclusively for the enjoyment and glory of God. Realize this. You are today where your thoughts have brought you. You'll be tomorrow where your thoughts will take you. Your thought life will shape the rest of your life. Be careful what you think. It's what you'll become. I've heard it put, we are not what we think we are, but what we think we are. Outlook produces outcome. This is what the Bible tells us. Proverbs 23 verse 7 reads, for as a person thinks in his heart, so is he. Thoughts yield attitudes, and attitudes then yield actions. If you're a Christian, God has done a miracle in your spirit, in the eternal part of your person. You've been forgiven of sin. You've been given a brand new nature. God has put in you a love for him and a love for the people around you. You are a new creation in Christ but that doesn't mean that you'll immediately think like one. Following our conversion, the mind has to be renewed. And this is where the battle begins. A Greek poet, Horace, once cautioned his students, rule your mind 
or it will rule you. Either you will control your thoughts or your thoughts will control you. One year I coached my son Zach in Little League Baseball. These were nine, ten-year-old boys, and most had played baseball before. It was our first day of practice, and I was trying to teach them the importance of playing smart baseball. And so I asked the team, okay, boys, what's the most important piece of equipment in baseball? Now, I had asked this question in years past, and the boys had always answered, you know, what you would expect, your glove or your bat or your catcher's mitt or the face mask or maybe the batter's helmet. But when the kids were all done guessing, I would always surprise them by saying, no, the most important piece of equipment is your brain. It's your mind. That's how it was supposed to go down. Well, at this particular practice, a boy named Mark, he raised his hand when I asked the question. He said, coach, the most important piece of equipment in baseball is your cup. (laughs) And I mean, how can you argue with Mark? He was a little wise guy, all right, but after I stopped laughing and got myself back up off the ground, I asked another question. All right, what's the second most important piece of equipment in baseball? Well, this morning, if I were to ask you, what's your most important piece of equipment in the game of life? How would you answer? Money? Connections? Talent? Well, the correct answer would be, my thought life. This morning, I want to take a closer look at this battle that is raging in our minds. We'll look at the foe, then the fight, then the firepower. But here's our starting point. The good news about this battle is that God has promised that this is a fight we can win. This morning, we're going to learn how. First, we need to identify our foe Paul points to a trifecta of evil thoughts, strongholds, arguments, high things. These are forms of thinking that rival the knowledge of God, that elevate themselves above the truth of God. These are the thoughts that need to be cast down. In 1994, Reuters News Service issued a report about a Chinese woman who was experiencing numbness in her legs and arms. She consulted the doctors, but to no avail. For nearly two decades, her symptoms worsened. Massive headaches were added to her ailments. Again, her piercing pain drove her to the doctors. This time, a CAT scan revealed the problem. A rusty pin was lying right underneath her scalp. The head of the pin was outside her skull, but the point of the pin was actually poking into the brain. The location of the pin caused doctors to speculate that the sharp object had somehow penetrated her skin shortly after birth, before her skull had hardened and taken shape. Everyone was amazed that a person could live so long with a rusty pin sticking into their gray matter. And yet every one of us has been victimized by rusty, polluted thoughts. As Paul puts it, strongholds, arguments, high things are what causes pain and ailment. If everyone here today was subject, subjected to a spiritual CAT scan, trust me, it would reveal a dirty brain. Notice first, Paul mentions strongholds. 
These are false assumptions that we develop about God and about life and about other people, even ourselves. These are the presuppositions that form over time. They're ideas that have been drawn from relationships and life experiences, and they dramatically affect our outlook. I mean, perhaps you grew up hearing people say that you were worthless. This negative identity was supported by the lack of attention that you received from your parents at home. The kids at school all chimed in. They called you ugly. You were always the last one chosen. You weren't one of the popular kids. When it came prom night, you stayed home. Today, your circumstances have changed. You're loved and forgiven by God. You're surrounded by an adoring spouse and admiring kids and faithful friends. But you're still tormented by those deep-seated, painful feelings of rejection that formed early in your life. Perhaps you had a demanding dad you could never please. You resented his constant pressure and were so relieved to leave home and get out from under his disapproval. But to this day, his expectations still haunt you. You work and work and work and you don't know why. Your God, your family, they love you for who you are, but you're still trying to win that elusive approval. You see, these are the kinds of attitudes that Paul labels strongholds. A stronghold develops over many years. It's the constant dripping of disappointment and failed expectation. It creates a mound of misconception and a pile of self-pity and a heel of hurt. Emotional stalactites fill the cavern of our minds. Rusty pins put there early in life by people other than us cause tremendous pain. Even in our thoughts about God, we can become victimized. Perhaps a hellfire and damnation preacher gave you the idea that all God wanted to do was judge you. That he desired to squelch any fun and doom you to boredom. Over the years, you've lived in confusion. You've needed God, but you failed to reach out to him. Instead, you've muffled your hurts. And you've muddled, muddled along in life trying to get by without God. The God who made you and loves you and has a plan for you. Some of us have kept God and Christians at arm's length rather than risk another round of rejection. You see, sadly, these strongholds can create a stranglehold on our lives and rob us of the love and joy and peace God wants for us. Then there are what Paul calls arguments. And these are the justifications and the rationalizations and the excuses we use to support the strongholds that have been formed. You see, strongholds are inadvertent. They're the result of being fed false information over time. But once they form, rather than tear them down, we often support them. We even build up arguments for those, those strongholds in our own thinking. One translation of verse 5 puts it this way. Our battle is to break down every deceptive argument and every imposing defense that men erect against the true knowledge of God. Not only do we need to tear down the false assumptions, but we also need to put away the excuses that we use to defend those assumptions. It reminds me of the bitter old lady who never married. 
Rather than open up her hurts to the love of God, she spent her whole life just angry with the men who rejected her. In fact, when she died, her last will and testament ordered no male pallbearers at her funeral. It also provided her reasoning. They wouldn't take me out when I was alive, and so I don't want them taking me out when I'm dead. Now that's some bitterness. You see, strongholds, they point us in the wrong direction. But arguments, they keep us headed in that same direction. See, it's one thing to be moving down the wrong track, but it's another thing to develop excuses and self-serving philosophies to make us feel better about it. Our excuses have got to go. We need to cast down both strongholds and the arguments that support them. And then the third part of this evil trifecta are the high things. High things are tall walls that form in our minds to keep the evil in and the goodness out. I mean, keep digging a hole long enough and it'll eventually become too deep for you to get out, at least on your own. You'll be stuck until help arrives. And this is what we do mentally and emotionally when we develop these false assumptions about life. Then even when the weight of the evidence is clearly against us, we still proudly protect the lie as if it were true. High things blind us to God's truth and insulate us from the biblical teaching about life and about ourselves, the teachings that could set us free. Here's a great little quip. Sow a thought, reap an action. Reap a, sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Well, the high things are the addictive and the destructive character that forms when you continually sow wrong thoughts over and over again. You can no longer see around or over the wall. You assume that escape and change are impossible for you. I mean, tell a man who's built up these mental walls in his life that it's time to do a little soul searching, and he'll think you're asking him to go through his Motown music collection. Get it? Soul searching? Get it? My, my point is, is, he's oblivious to the issues. Have you ever tried to talk to someone who was just oblivious to the issues? I mean, high things are these walls of stubbornness that blind us to the truth about God and about ourselves and about our relationships. In November, on November the 9th, 1994, Jeffrey Maine was driving through downtown West Haven, Connecticut. He thought he noticed a problem with his brakes. When he got out at the stoplight, and when he came to the stoplight, he put his car into park and he got out to check on the brakes. Well, suddenly, after he got out of the car, the car slipped into reverse. And it started flying backwards down the street, unmanned. Well, the steering wheel spun, and it sent the car into a never-ending spin. The car started circling round and round and round, blocking traffic in West Haven's busiest intersection. Well, the police and the fire departments, they were called in, but there was nothing they could do but just watch. The car had a full tank of gas. For two hours, they just sat there and watched the car speed round and round and round the intersection. Finally, city officials were called in. They called in the road construction crews. 
and three big earth movers converged on the out-of-control car and held it until firefighters could break the window and turn off the ignition. Of course, the car was totaled. But here's the question. Are you spinning in circles? You see, strongholds, they send us in the wrong direction. Arguments then keep us moving in that direction. And then the high things send us into a tailspin where we get stuck and we can't even receive the help that we need. All three are rusty pins that stick in our brains. Foes that need to be removed and thus the fight begins. And Paul tells us that the fight is in two stages. He says stage one involves the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down arguments and every hot thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And then after those rusty pins are removed, then we're ready for stage two. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, the strategy for victory in our thought life is twofold. Casting down and then bringing around. Now, at first glance... Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. You you probably know this verse. At first glance, it's a sugary, syrupy little verse that seems to sort of promote the naivety of the positive thinking crowd. Perhaps you've heard the verse. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. If Paul were texting, he would have had a little smiley face right on the end. But what at first appears But what at first here appears as a mushy verse is not what it seems. For this verse follows a chapter of intense choices. If you go back and read Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us how that he has forgotten the religion of his past. That he has turned his back on his self-righteous achievements and his claims to fame. That he has torn his former values out by the root. That he's charted a new course for his life. That when he met Jesus, everything in his life changed. He is now making it his goal to press on. Paul is putting on a full court press to know Jesus in all of his fullness, to experience his power and his sufferings. Read through Philippians, and by the time you get to chapter 4, verse 8, Paul has ransacked his thought life. He has pulled out and cast down all his assumptions and justifications. He's cleaned house, you might say. He's undergone a total home makeover. And now in verse 8, he tells us how he intends to redecorate his life. Whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And this is what Paul says to the Corinthians. Clear out your old thought life and begin to redecorate with godliness. When the New International Version translates the phrases pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments, it uses the term demolish. Sounds serious, doesn't it? Demolish. 
Paul's saying it's time to schedule our strongholds and arguments and high things for total demolition. You see, the reason some of us never get victory in our thoughts is we're not ruthless enough in our choices. You don't transform your outlook on life by simply memorizing a few Bible verses from time to time or reading a quote of the day before you go off to work. If you want your life to really reflect the glory of God, you have to hold up every area of your life and inspect it under the light of God's Word. Cast it side by side with the truth of Scripture. You have to be ruthless about it. It takes courage and commitment and brutal honesty to stop hiding behind excuses and justifications and tear out the old assumptions. High walls crumble only when pride is dealt a death blow. You see, too many folks become Christians thinking all God really wants in their life is to eliminate a few discomforts and then sort of add the pleasantries that they've been missing. Hey, God is far more ambitious than that. The Greek word translated here, pulling down, can also be rendered extinction. God wants the false assumptions and the impure imaginations and the haunting insecurities that roam the forest of your mind to die off without multiplying. He wants those false thoughts to become extinct. He wants you to get rid of them for good. I like this poem. It makes the point. A naughty little weed one day poked up its tiny head. Tomorrow I will put you out, old Mr. Weed, I said. But I put off the doing till when next I passed that way, the hateful thing had spread abroad and laughed at my dismay. A naughty little thought one day popped right into my mind. Oh no, I cried. I'll put you out tomorrow, you will find. But once again, I put it off till like the little weed, the ugly thing sprang up afresh and grew into a deed. You can't tolerate the mental weeds. You allow them to fester and grow and you won't be living a life that's pleasing to God. You've got to pull up those weeds by the root. And you see, the path to victory is two-staged. First, you pull out the weeds. You cast down the strongholds. Then... Those wild and wandering thoughts have to be corralled and tamed. The mind has to be retrained to obey God or it will return to those false assumptions you once tore down. Paul puts it this way, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Here are a couple of other renderings that help us understand Paul's point. Peterson paraphrases verse 5, fitting every loose thought an emotion, an impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Are you doing that? Fitting every loose thought into the structure of life created by Christ? J.B. Phillips says this, We fight to capture every thought until it acknowledges the authority of Christ. In essence, our minds have to be wrestled and pinned and made to think godly thoughts. You remember Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. We read it last week. God speaks through the prophet, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, God's thoughts don't come naturally to us. They have to be learned. We have to be taught. Our minds have to be retrained. 
This is a true, especially in the face of our fluctuating feelings and our fickle emotions. We need to embrace and learn God's truth and anchor our feelings to his word. You know, airplane pilots describe the dangerous phenomena that occurs whenever they're flying through a bank of clouds with near zero visibility. The pilot is struck by the sensation, when he can't see, he's struck by the sensation that the wings of the plane are no longer parallel to the ground, and thus the airplane is into a nosedive. Of course, a quick peek at the instrument panel says that everything's okay. This is a strange sensation. On the one hand, he's got this urge to grab the stick and right the plane, but the instruments say no. I mean, what do you do in that moment? Do you trust your feelings or do you trust the instruments? A pilot in that situation has to forcibly deny his feelings and make himself trust in the truth that he's gleaning from the instrument panel. And this is exactly what happens in the Christian life. God's word tells us that he loves us, that he'll see us through, that he can be trusted, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, but we feel alone. We've grown afraid. Worrisome thoughts now run wild in our minds. And in those moments, we have to capture all of those wildcat, rebel thoughts and make them obey what we know is true. We have to force our thoughts to trust in Christ. We have to look to the instrument panel, His Word, and anchor our feelings to His Word. Like a kid with a net rounding up all the butterflies, we have to snatch and focus all of our stray thoughts on what we know is true. Reminds me of the cowboy. He was driving down a deserted road. His dog was in the back of the pickup truck, and he was pulling a trailer that was occupied by his faithful horse. Well, suddenly he lost control, and the whole rig ran down a steep embankment. All three parties, the cowboy, the dog, and the horse, they were all in terrible shape. They suffered multiple wounds and fractures. Well, the policeman, when he finally got there, he found the horse first. He saw the severity of the injuries. He pulled out his revolver, bam, put the horse down. Then he found the dog. It, too, was critically injured, and so, bam, he put it out of its misery. Of course, the injured cowboy, he was witnessing all of this. And thus, when the officer finally found the busted-up driver, he raced to his side, and he asked him how he was doing, to which the cowboy said, man, I've never been better. I mean, he was aching, but seeing what had happened to the horse and the dog, he suppressed his feelings, and he pulled his thoughts together, and he uttered the right response, and that's what we have to do. We have to train ourselves to do the same. We won't always feel like obeying God or trusting God. That's when we have to deny our feelings, gather up our thoughts, and conform them to God's truth. Of course, this is easier said than done, isn't it? That's why we need help. We need some spiritual firepower. And thus Paul promises us in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. God promises us a potent arsenal. During my research last week, I learned that the best-selling video game franchise of all time is Mario Brothers. 
Since Mario first appeared in 1981, 446 million applications of Mario have been sold worldwide. I remember when my kids got their first Nintendo. I spent more time than I care to admit bouncing little Mario and his brother Luigi all over the Mushroom Kingdom. I wasted a lot of hours on that thing. And if I recall correctly, if you bounced Mario to the right spot, he would swell up and enlarge. He would gain the capacity to not just shoot out one BB, but now a stream of BBs. It was called firepower. This was the key to success in the game, firepower. And you know, this is the key to victory in this battle for the mind. In Christ, we've been given supernatural firepower. The Spirit of God indwells within us and comes upon us to enlarge our capacities. And he uses God's word to pull down strongholds and arguments and high things that stand against the truth of God. We've been given mighty weapons, the power of the Holy Spirit, the awesome power of God's living word, the blood of Jesus, the word of our testimony, spiritual gifts and prayer and love and hope and faith and fellowship. These are all the weapons of our warfare and they are mighty in God. The more we dwell in God's blessing and abide in His love, the more power is unleashed into our lives. Paul states, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The word carnal means fleshly. My flesh constitutes me apart from God. Anything that derives from me, my goodness, my muscle, my ingenuity, the carnal weapons are the self-help techniques, the little mind games, the behavioral modification things that we try, the things that are independent of God's word and ways and will. And when these carnal tools are used, man gets glorified, but not God. That's why you'll never demolish spiritual strongholds and arguments and high things apart from the power of God. When negative feelings or sinful impulses come out of nowhere and try to overwhelm your spirit, open your Bible, use your weapons, and read how you're the apple of God's eye. Remind yourself that He chose you before the foundation of the world, that He promises to never leave you or forsake you. Remember that God sacrificed Jesus, His most precious possession, to make you His child. If you didn't have a reason before to rise up and resist sin, you certainly do now. In Christ, you have reasons galore. Here's the point. Grab hold of God's truth, and the Holy Spirit will see to it that His Word reaches out and grabs hold of you. If you savor the Word of God, God's Spirit will bring it to life within your heart. He will validate it by working personally in your life. Ask Him to recall Scripture to your mind at key points in your day. God has ways of making His truth real in our daily lives. Author G.K. Chesterton once wrote, I am convinced that the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to close it again on something solid. That means we need to chew on God's Word. The Scripture is the solid food we need to grow in our faith. You see, here's what Paul's telling us to do. As we pull down strongholds, along with the arguments and habits that prop them up, 
as we capture every stray thought and make it obey the truth of Christ, we're fueling the whole process by chewing on God's Word and walking by faith and abiding in God's presence and trusting in His strength and relying on His power. Once a little girl, she complained about a stomach ache. Her mom explained that her stomach hurt probably because it was empty. And if she put something in it, she would be fine. Weeks later, the little girl was at church when she overheard her pastor complain about a headache. And she remembered her mom's words. The little girl told him, said, Pastor, my mom says your head hurts because it's empty. But if you put something in it, you'll be fine. And spiritually, that's true of all of us. The key to success is open mind, insert word. Are you a student of the Scripture? Do you mull it over in your mind and hide it in your heart and apply it to your life? Hey, you're not a serious Christian until you get serious about studying and applying God's Word. Our minds need to be renewed. In Psalm 119 and in verse 9, the psalmist asks the question, How can a young man cleanse his way? And then he provides the answer. By taking heed according to your word. You know, it's interesting that the psalmist picks out the young man. He doesn't point to the little baby or the toddler or even the grandma. I mean, how dirty can they be? No, he mentions adolescent boys. How can a young man cleanse his... Oh, teenage boys, they're notorious for being reckless and impulsive and driven by untamed passion. And yet the psalmist is confident that there is a way to corral even the young man. And if you can shape the young man's life, then the same method will be successful for every category of persons. And so what is the solution? By taking heed to God's Word. It's no exaggeration. The most crucial step you can take in your Christian life is to daily set aside a time to get in God's Word and then apply what you learn throughout the day. We create big problems for ourselves if we allow our minds to just drift aimlessly and never dwell on Scripture. Think about it. You'd never let your toddler wander through the neighborhood or your dog just wander through the Walmart. I mean, why should you let your mind just wander around aimlessly without any direction? Earlier, I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind. You could put it this way. Keep your mind on a leash. It's been said, empty lots and empty minds collect trash. I mean, vacant lots are notorious eyesores, aren't they? And so are minds void of spiritual input. We lose the battle for our minds if we leave them empty and unguarded. Not setting your mind on Jesus is in essence letting your mind get pulled and drawn toward the negative and toward the nasty. Here's what we're learning from today's lesson. To conquer the foe and win the fight, interject the firepower. Fill your mind with God's Word. Hey, in closing, let me ask you a vital question. Who's minding your mind? The Black College Fund has a famous slogan. It's now 40 years old. You've heard it. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Well, that is especially true for a Christian. 
If you don't win the battle over sin in your mind, you'll next be fighting it in your words and in your deeds. Put an end to the sin before that thought becomes an action. Let's glorify God in the inner court of our thoughts and our feelings as well as the outer court of our deeds.